right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to be looking at Mark, chapter 10, verse 45 this evening. Obviously, we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And last week, you'll remember that we looked at this verse in its broader context. That's verses 35 through 45. And there we saw how Jesus used our text this evening to show that he is the great example of selfless service. But this evening, we'll be looking at verse 45 a second time, all by itself. And I'm doing that so that I can try to wring out as much as I can from these words, because this verse is phenomenal. Uh, commentator William Lane, not to be confused with William Lane Craig, uh, the commentator William Lane said this about Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, each of the components of this highly compressed saying is significant. Right, so every aspect of this verse, and it's a compressed verse, so there's a lot that it's saying in very few words. Every aspect of this verse is significant. John Piper said, Mark 10.45 is what turns Christianity into gospel. So it turns Christianity into good news. This one verse is dripping with gospel truth. It's jam-packed with gospel in just a mere 24 words. And I've come to love this verse deeply, and you should too, because in it, our Lord tells us the significance and purpose of his death. It's been mentioned by many commentators and preachers that this verse is Mark's answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? This verse answers that question. You see, up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has only given us the fact that he will die and be raised. But he has not explained the significance of it. Up to this point, Jesus has not explained why he is going to die and be raised, only that it will happen. But here in our text, our Lord tells us what he's going to accomplish in his death. And it is glorious. Each word is glorious. And though the truths in this verse are very well known among us, no doubt, I don't believe that they're worn out among us. Because the people of God love hearing the glory of Christ's person and his, the glory of his work of redemption, right? We love hearing, if I could sound like a southern-styled preacher for a moment, we love hearing that old, old story, right? That old, beautiful, powerful, unchanging gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So I pray that God would grant us ears to hear so that the gospel might amaze us once again and so that we might look to Christ all the more as the one who paid our ransom and saved us. Now with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you once again and ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Grant the preacher to speak boldly and zealously from your word. Grant the hearers to listen intently and gladly to that word preached. And help us all, God, Help us to behold the wonder and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. Glorify yourself this evening, we pray, and we ask for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. 
Uh, the text before us is the mission statement of our Lord Jesus Christ from his own lips, right? as I said earlier in the introduction. It's his mission statement. And so it's especially important uh, for us to understand this text as deeply as we can. And because of that, what I'm going to do is walk through this verse phrase by phrase and even word by word at times so that we can see all that our Lord intends us to see. Right? So let's just go ahead and dive into it. Our Lord begins by saying, For even the Son of Man... We'll stop there. For even the Son of Man... He begins by referencing himself as the Son of Man. If you didn't know, this is Jesus' favorite self-designation. Right? It's his favorite title for himself. It's his favorite nickname, if you want to be more casual about it. It's his favorite title. And he's the only one who uses that title, Son of Man, in the entire New Testament. It's a Jesus-exclusive thing. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And what he's doing here is he's calling our minds to an Old Testament text, right? Namely, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where we read about one who is referred to as the Son of Man, right? And I'm sure some of you, every time that we've seen this phrase, Son of Man, in Mark's gospel, I take you back to Daniel 7, right? Some of you are probably like rolling your eyes a little bit, right? But I do this because I'm of the opinion that nearly every time if not every single time that Jesus uses the title Son of Man, we are to be reminded of this figure in the book of Daniel. All right, so let me read this text. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. This is God the Father. He came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel says that he saw one like a Son of Man. That is, he saw a human. He saw a man, and that son of man, this is important, came with the clouds of heaven. This will all make sense in a minute. Just keep tracking with me. The son of man came with the clouds of heaven. That's a reference to deity. Maybe you didn't know that. It's a reference to deity. You can look it up for yourself. Psalm 104, verse 3, Isaiah 19, verse 1. It is God who rides on the clouds. It's God who comes riding swiftly on a cloud. God who comes on the clouds. And here, this Son of Man is riding on clouds, going up to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is God. He's divine. He's truly human and truly divine. This is the God-man. This is Jesus. And this Son of Man, Daniel says, received an eternal kingdom from God. God the Father gives the kingdom to God the Son and the Son of Man will reign over the whole earth forever and ever in his kingdom. Again, this tells us that the Son of Man must be divine. For only God has the right to rule over all creation with sovereign and eternal dominion like this. And Daniel tells us that the Son of Man is going to do just that. The Son of Man is God incarnate. The Son of Man is God in the flesh. And again, as I've already said, Jesus Christ is this Son of Man that Daniel spoke of. He wants us to think of this figure from Daniel's vision whenever he calls himself the Son of Man. He is the one 
Jesus is the one to whom all the world will be given, the one to whom all the world will bow down, the one who will be worshipped by all, the one who will be served by all the nations. The Son of Man is the glorious and great King of all the earth. This is Jesus. And he entered into this reign, if you were wondering. He entered into this reign in his kingdom and dominion when he ascended to heaven in a cloud. When he ascended to the Ancient of Days and was seated, Psalm 110, and was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and was crowned king. But before he would be crowned, he would go to a cross. Before he would be crowned, he would go to a cross. He said it three times now in Mark's gospel, three times. And that's what Mark 10.45 is all about. This glorious and great Son of Man, who is God incarnate, this one who is given all authority to rule and govern the world, who will be served by all the nations, this Son of Man is Jesus. And if you're wondering why I'm driving this point home, I'll tell you. I'm driving this point home because what we're about to consider for the rest of this verse was done by this very same Son of Man. What we're about to consider for the rest of our time together was done by this one. The one who will give his life as a ransom for many. The one, the one who has come to serve sinners by giving his life for theirs. is no ordinary person. He's no mere man. He's no random person chosen. He is the Son of Man. Stand amazed, Christian. Before we go any further, stand amazed at this. Never lose sight of just who it was who gave his life for you. It was the glorious Son of Man of Daniel 7. It was the eternal Son of God who took on flesh to ransom us. The one whom you should have served, served you. The one who reigns in glory and majesty forever and ever first came to die for you. Don't ever lose that. Don't ever lose that. If you lose that, you'll lose the glory of Christ. That he would humble himself and become a servant. You'll lose his glory that this majestic son of man would die for sinners. You'll lose the glory of Christ. You'll lose the glory of the gospel. You'll never be amazed at him if you forget just who he is and who you are as a sinner. Never forget that it was the son of man Son of God, who came to do all that this verse says. I just wanted to put that in your head. What we're about to see in this verse is the Son of Man of Daniel 7 doing this. But our Lord goes on and says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now, I want to highlight something here that is really, really simple. Right? Some of you might laugh, actually. But I think that this is actually really profound for us to consider. The Son of Man came dot, 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 to serve, right? He came to do something. Simple enough. Here's my point. When you come to do something, you've come with a purpose, right? If I go to the gro or if I've come to the grocery store to get groceries, I came to that place with a mission. My mission is to get groceries, <laughs> right? We don't think about it that way, right? Because you're just going to the grocery store, but it's true, Right? When we go somewhere to do anything, we've come to that place with a purpose. We've come with a mission or a task that we aim to fulfill. If that were not the case, then we wouldn't have come to do anything. We may go somewhere, but we didn't come to do anything. Now, I know that this is very simple, but our Lord says 
that he came to do something. Again, namely to serve. His coming to the earth was in order to fulfill a mission. That's what I want you to see. I see some of you are snickering. That was my point in all of this. He came to do something, to fulfill a task. He came with a purpose to accomplish. And Jesus says that this purpose can be summarized with the word serve. And that's because he came to do something that would benefit many others. This language of coming with a purpose to accomplish is a reference to our Lord's messianic mission. And what is this mission that he came to fulfill? Well, he came to accomplish his work in what we call the covenant of redemption. That was his mission. Right? So we're going to do some explicit theology here. We're always doing theology at church, right? The sermons are always packed with theology, but I'm telling you on the front end, explicitly we're about to do some theology here. He came to do his work in the covenant of redemption. He came to earth because of this covenant made between the persons of the Holy Trinity. Now, our confession actually speaks of this in the 1689, chapter 7, paragraph 3. It's our church's statement of faith. Where we read this. I'll read this to you. Stay here with me. This covenant, referring to the covenant of grace, by which everyone who has ever been saved is saved. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterward by farther steps until the full discovery or establishment thereof was completed in the New Testament or New Covenant. And it, this covenant, is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. So our confession is saying that God's design to save sinners through the covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. And that gospel was promised first to Adam, right? Genesis 3, the serpent crusher is going to be born. The, the, the son is going to be born of Eve who's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? This gospel is promised to Adam, and then it's revealed by further and further promises until it was finally established in the new covenant, and that covenant through which sinners are saved, the new covenant in the blood of Christ, was founded in a covenant made in eternity past between the Father and the Son to save sinners. I know that that is a lot, so let me give you some summary statements on that. It boils down to this. The new covenant, which is the covenant that saves sinners through the blood of Jesus was brought about in time and history by Jesus Christ because of a prior covenant made first between the Father and the Son concerning the salvation of God's people. In other words, Jesus Christ came into the world in order to accomplish the work that He and the Father had covenanted together to do. And that work was the salvation of sinners by Jesus' living, dying, and being raised on their behalf. Jesus came to accomplish a mission. A mission to fulfill the covenant that he and his father had made before the world began. A covenant that when fulfilled results in the salvation of sinners. Or you could say serving them by saving them. The covenant of redemption is the agreement between the father and the son to bring the elect salvation. It is the plan of God from eternity past to save sinners. 
And I'll be honest with you and let you know up front that this theological phrase, covenant of redemption, is not found on the pages of Scripture. It's just not. But brothers and sisters, the concept is everywhere. The concept is everywhere. The theological phrase isn't in the Bible, but the concept is there, and that's what matters. In Titus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Eternal life is promised before the ages began. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that the plan to send Jesus into the world to serve and save sinners existed before the ages began. The Father and Son had already covenanted together before the ages began to do this work. Another text, Revelation 13.8, speaks of not having your name, or speaks of those whose names are not, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain existed before the foundation of the world. That's what this text is saying quite clearly. And that means that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, had before the world began agreed to come and be slain to save all whose names are written in that book. Another text in Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 12, we read how it was the will of Yahweh, the Lord, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And how the Messiah would make an offering for guilt and save his people. We read how the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. My point with looking at Isaiah 53 there is that the work of Christ was prophesied. It was prophesied. That means that it is the plan of God before Jesus came that he would crush Jesus. And that Jesus would save sinners by being crushed by the Father. Again, an agreement between the Father and the Son. A covenant between them exists prior to Jesus' coming. And that's not even to mention texts like Ephesians 1.4 or 2 Timothy 1.9. Nor is it to go through the multitude, it's crazy, the multitude of texts in the Gospel of John where we read time and time again how Jesus spoke of doing the work my Father gave me and how I've come to do not my own will but the will of the one who sent me or how I've come to lay down my life for those whom the Father has given to me. This is why Jesus came. It's to serve. And this service is found in the fulfilling of the covenant made between him and God the Father concerning the salvation of the people of God. Our Lord entered into this covenant in eternity past and then came into the world in order to keep it and save sinners. So we see then how abundantly true and deeper than we probably thought before we got here. How deep this statement is so far. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He came. He will be served for eternity, but that's not why he came the first time. When he came in his first advent, he came with a mission to fulfill, which was a covenant that when kept would result in the salvation of sinners. He came to serve and save the lost. And how will he accomplish this work? How will he accomplish this covenant? He will give his life. He will give his life. This is a reference, obviously, to the cross work that he has prophesied three times now. Right? He will give his life when he goes to the cross and dies. And notice that he gives it. I always want to highlight this. He gives his life. I love this about our Lord Jesus, and you should too. He gives his life. No one took it from him. He gave it. 
he laid down his life. May God give us eyes to see the beauty of this. And I really mean that. Right? That's not just like sermon fluff. May God honestly help us to see this, the beauty of this. He gave up his life because he wanted to. Because he wanted to fulfill his covenant work. Because he wanted to save his people. Perish the thought that Jesus didn't want to give his life but was forced to. That is a lie from liberal theologians. Or that his life was snatched away from him against his will. That is not what he says here. He says he gives his life. And I'd go one further. The wages of sin is death. We die because we're sinners. Jesus is the sinless son of God placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He wasn't born a sinner like you and I. He could not die unless he gave his life up. I'm of the opinion he, couldn't, he could not die unless he agreed to die. Because sinners die, and he was not a sinner. So then if he dies, it must be because he gives his life. And he says so in other places. In one of the most glorious texts in the whole Bible that you have heard me mention probably five times in the last month, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. He gave his life. No one took it from him. No one forced him. He gave it willingly of his own accord because he wanted to, because he wanted to fulfill the covenant of redemption, because he wanted to save us. Because he wanted to. Christian, see how dear you must be to the Son of God. See the love of Christ for you. He is no robotic savior who does what he must because he must. No. He does what he does for sinners willingly. Have you ever considered this? It brings your savior pleasure to save you. He loves being the savior of those who believe. Christian, he loves you. He gave his life for you. And you don't give your life for people that you don't love. He gave his life but why did he give his life? To what end? To accomplish what? What does giving his life, what does dying on a cross accomplish? He says he will give his life as a ransom. Now this word ransom is a unique word in the New Testament. Right? It's used only here and in the parallel in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28. But it's used elsewhere. Again, it's unique, but it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, in the Greek Septuagint, right? That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in the Old Testament, this word ransom, to speak of a payment. A ransom is a payment. Track with me here. This is super important. A ransom is a payment that frees one who is enslaved. To pay a ransom is to give what is required in order to release someone from a debt that is owed or imposed upon them by another. Someone is being held captive. Someone is in bondage to something in some dire situation. And a ransom payment, or rather a ransom is the payment that must be made in order for that person to go free. Brothers and sisters, our Lord is here referring to the ransom required in order to save sinners. 
Every person has a debt of sin to God. And God requires payment from every one of us. We've offended his majesty with every sin we've committed. And as Charles Spurgeon said, there is an infinitude of wickedness in even a single sin. An infinity of wickedness. And we have mountains of sin standing behind us. We have a debt to God that we cannot pay. And the payment of that debt of sin is the wrath of God. It's an eternity of separation from God in the lake of fire. It's an eternity of conscious punishment and torment. Our sin is so grievous and so offensive to God that He will not and cannot wink at it, right? He's not like the God of Islam that can just turn His head and let the debt go unsettled. He doesn't do that. For Him to do that would be unjust. His law has been offended. His law has been broken. And justice demands there to be punishment. And God is just. He is just. He is the embodiment of justice. He is the definition of justice. God's own nature demands there to be punishment for the breaking of his law. And he, as Paul tells us, I believe it's in 1 Timothy, will not deny himself. He will not deny himself. The debt must be settled. Someone must pay for sin. You see, the word of God declares in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sinners must die physically in this world and then suffer the second death in the lake of fire for their sin. And the word of God also declares that all of us have a debt of sin from the womb onward. Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's King David saying here? He's saying, from the moment sperm met egg, I was a sinner. He inherited Adam's guilt as we all have. Being sons and daughters of Adam, we've inherited his sin nature, and we've inherited his own guilt because he represented us before God when he disobeyed. From the womb we're sinners. And not only that, not only do we have inherited guilt, original sin, and an inherited sin nature, we also have actual sins. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Apostle Paul himself, when bringing the charge of sin against all men in Romans 3, says this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Every single human being owes a debt to God for his or her sin. And apart from God's grace, every single person is a captive to the wrath of God. Sold under sin. A child of wrath is what Paul calls us in our natural state in Ephesians 2. Children of the wrath of God, held captive to his justice, held captive to his anger for our sin. And the debt must be settled by someone. Payment must be made. And if the sinner pays, then they will pay forever. Because the offense is so great against an infinitely holy God. And an infinitely heinous transgression requires an infinite punishment. We need someone to pay our debt. You put it this way, in line with our text, we need 
a ransom or we will be damned for eternity. And praise God, he has provided a ransom. He has provided a way for our debt to be settled. You see, God, being the one to whom the debt is owed, has the right to receive payment however he pleases, so long as the payment is made. And he was pleased to exact that payment for sin from another instead of us. And that is why Jesus goes on to say one of the most glorious words in the entire Bible. For. Maybe you didn't know that that's a glorious word, but it is. For. This word is precious. In the original language, the word is anti. Literally, it means in place of. Whenever someone's an antichrist, it doesn't mean that they're against Christ, although they are against Christ. It means they're a false Christ that someone is putting in place of the real Christ. That's what an antichrist is. Anti means in place of. When something is given for another thing, it is given in place of that thing. If me and you made a trade, I would give you this for that. I would give you something in place of the thing you gave me. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, literally, in place of, is what he says. In place of sinners. This word for is full of beauty for the sinner who knows what they deserve. It's full, of, it's full of beauty for the sinner who knows they deserve to be damned for their sin. For is a gospel word. This is the language of substitution. Stephen Lawson once said, the gospel could very well be summed up with the word substitution. And I think he is absolutely correct about that. The gospel can be summed up with the word substitution. Our Lord is saying in very plain language here that he will give his life as a substitute for sinners. He will give his life as a payment, as a ransom, in the place of sinners. This is what we call in theology penal substitutionary atonement. You already know what this means, at least most of you, so don't be freaked out by the phrase. This is the biblical doctrine that states that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his cross and death, suffered the penalty for sin as a substitute for his people, and in doing so, made atonement on their behalf to God. And this concept of penal substitutionary atonement is found everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. It's, it's what the Old Testament sacrificial system that pointed to Jesus Christ all along. It's what the Old Testament sacrificial system was based on. This idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Now time will not permit me to read all of the relevant texts on this. But let me offer you one brief one. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. What we learn from the Old Testament sacrificial system is that when a person sins, when a person sins, that is when there is guilt incurred before God for any form of disobedience, something has to die in place of the sinner. Something has to die. 
Something has to take the penalty for sin as a substitute for the sinner. And if that doesn't happen, then the sinner will bear his guilt before God and be condemned for it. The most basic thing we learn from Old Testament sacrifice is that a payment for sin must be made or the offender will incur the wrath of God. But we also learn graciously that God is pleased to exact payment from someone other than the offender. And so atonement can be made on behalf of the sinner. Jesus is the great fulfillment of all that the sacrificial system pointed to. The author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But he goes on to tell us that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for sin once and for all in our place. And he did so in order to pay our ransom to God so that we could go free and be saved eternally from God's wrath that we deserve for our sin. And we see this not just in the Old Testament, but all over the pages of the New Testament. And it is such a glorious and often repeated truth that what I'm going to do now is just read a whole bunch of scripture to you. Ten different passages I want to read to you now. So just sit back and be amazed and glory in your Redeemer who is your substitute and ransom. Hear the word of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous in place of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Romans 4.25 Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us, that is, He gave a ransom. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Corinthians 6.20, speaking of a ransom given, For you were bought with a price. Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ephesians 1.7 In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Titus 2.14 Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
the language of Christ as the substitute and redeemer is all over the Bible. It is everywhere. And hear me, a substitute stands in for another who should be there. A substitute stands in for one who should be there. A substitute teacher, what do they do? They stand in place of the regular teacher who should have been there. Jesus Christ is the substitute for sinners. He stands in the place of the sinner. He stands where we should be, which is under the wrath of God. But he stands there. He represented us on his cross. And here's the thing. God treated him as if he were us. God treated him as if he was the pornography-watching, child-murdering, atheist, unbelieving, lying, adultery-committing thief. Jesus was treated as if he had committed our sins. And he took that great cup of the wrath of God and drank it all. He bore the full punishment for our sins. And he propitiated the wrath of God. He satisfied. He made satisfaction for us in our place. And he paid for our sins as if he owed for them. His life for ours. His blood for our sin. His suffering for our salvation. He gave his life as a ransom. And he gave his life as a ransom for many, the text says. For many. And this phrase, for many, is probably a reference to Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, where we hear this echo a lot. We read this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. This is referring to Jesus. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The many refers to those who are saved by the work of the Messiah. That's who the many are. It's very easy to see there. He bears their iniquities and makes inter intercession for them, for the many. It refers to those for whom he makes atonement and intercedes. And in rabbinic literature, the many is a technical term. It's a term for the elect community. It's a term for the eschatological people of God. But in less academic language, it refers to the saved to those who are saved in the end. It refers to the ones God has chosen to save through the Messiah. And here in our text, it means those whom God has chosen to save through the blood of Christ, the Messiah. Now listen, I know it may be controversial to some, but I am not ashamed to proclaim it. This is a particular redemption. It's a particular redemption. It is not a generic atonement. It's just not. It is specific. He died for the many. He died for the many. He gave a ransom for the many. And listen, 
If you think I'm stretching the text, just think with me for a moment. First off, the many in Isaiah are those who are saved. Not every single body everywhere, but those who are saved. And that's who Jesus gives a ransom for. But let's go further. Who do you pay a ransom for? Specific individuals, don't you? You give a ransom for specific people. You do not pay a ransom for mere possibilities. That is not how a ransom works. I I assume we've all seen an action movie. You don't pay a ransom for people that you don't intend, or that aren't going to be freed. Right? You give a ransom for the one or ones you intend to rescue. And once the ransom is given, the one who has been ransomed goes free. Our Lord's ransom was for all those who were given to him by the Father to save in the covenant of redemption. It's all coming together now, isn't it? His atonement was made, his ransom was given for all those who were given to him by the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 15, our Lord says this, I lay down my life for the sheep. For the sheep. And then in verse 29, referring to those sheep, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Jesus made a ransom for his sheep. He gave his life for those whom the Father had given to him to redeem and save. So then we can say very clearly that that our Lord gave his life for all those who would ever believe on him in all ages and for none else. That is who he made the ransom for. He paid a particular ransom for a particular people. And listen, this isn't just a piece of theology. There is glory in this. There's glory and comfort for you who believe upon Jesus. There's glory and comfort here. If you believe on him, then you can know he was thinking of you on the cross. You. Hear me. He was not paying for a nameless, faceless church. No. He was purchasing those whom he had set his love upon in eternity past. Those whom he had covenanted with his father to save. He was purchasing you specifically. He was purchasing you. He died for you specifically. He paid the ransom for you and your particular sins particularly. He loves you. Specifically, you. And notice how beautiful this is. It struck me this week. It's so simple. The one son of man will give his life. The one. And his life is so precious. His life is so perfect and innocent. His blood so valuable. His payment so grand and great. His atoning work so utterly powerful that it ransoms the many. The one sacrifice of himself purchased all at once all of his people. Our Lord Jesus is mighty to save. The one sacrifice of himself, he saved us. Now allow me to say one final thing before application. I'm going to drive this home as hard as I can. I want you to notice that Jesus said he came to objectively accomplish the ransom for many. He came to do it. He will give the ransom, and he did 
And so the many will go free, period. He will do it. He will give his life and pay for sinners to go free, and he will save them in doing so. Listen, he will not pay a ransom, and maybe the sinners will go free. No. He's not going to give a ransom and, and maybe they'll go free. His blood is too precious. His life is too costly. His work is too powerful. His sacrifice is too great for that nonsense. He will objectively pay the price. And so those for whom he paid the price of their redemption, that is their ransom, they will go free. He will not try to save sinners. God does not try to do anything. He just does His will. Our Lord Jesus objectively saved sinners by His cross. He did not make salvation possible. He made salvation inevitable for all for whom He died. He did not make it possible. He made it inevitable. And that is why our Lord's final word, words on the cross were, it is finished. It is finished. It's paid for. The transaction is over. The ransom has been paid. The sinners will go free. All who would ever believe upon him will be saved. And that is the fact of the matter. Because God is just. Because God is just. He will not have Jesus pay a ransom for his people and then turn around and make them pay as well. That would be unjust. That would be injustice. That would be double payment. That would be double jeopardy in the courts of the Most High. That would be evil and unrighteous, but God is not evil. God is just. And so we can say with the hymn writer, if Christ my discharge has procured, that means if Christ has purchased my freedom, if Christ my discharge has procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, God will not twice demand, first at my dying Savior's hand and then again at mine. He won't do it. He won't do that. God will never make you pay for what Jesus already paid for. He paid. And those who believe on him are free. Free from wrath. Free from condemnation. Free from guilt. Free from sin. Free from hell. We are saved. Christian, put a period on the end of that sentence. We are saved. He paid our ransom with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And for application, let me just say two things. First, and most simply, believe in this Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for sinners. If you question whether or not his ransom payment was for you, know this. He died for those who believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon him and you can know for a certainty that your ransom was paid by him. Because he died for those who would believe. Because those who would believe are the ones who his father gave to him. Believe upon him and settle it forever that his ransom payment was for you. And have peace with God. Because that's what he purchased for you in his cross. 
Believe upon Christ. Have your sins forgiven and have peace with God because Jesus paid it all. And to those of you who believe, I say to you, rejoice because you are saved. You are saved. The dead is gone, free and clear. Christ has done it. We have been set free. So say it each day with tears of joy and a heart full of bursting. Christ has done it, and I am free. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that shows us the glory of Christ, that shows us the beauty of his work done for us. God, I pray that you would grant everyone in here a believing heart that they might unite themselves to the word of God with faith and know that Christ redeemed them with his blood. Help us to believe, Lord. There's no other thing for us to ask from this text but that you would grant us to believe in the one who gave his life for sinners. And we thank you and we praise you for Christ our ransom. We pray it in his name. Amen.